Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. This is Perry Marshall. I'm here with Addie Cross, and Addie is a professor emeritus at Ben Gurion University, and he is an expert in systems chemistry, and I met him at a private meeting at the Santa Fe Institute last summer. It was actually Stuart Kaufman's 80th birthday party. And I have to thank Addy because he's the guy that got me in. So, hey, you know, if a guy gets you into private parties, then I guess he must be a great guy. Addy and I immediately hit it off because we both agree about a whole bunch of questions that nobody's ever managed to answer yet. And I don't know about y'all, but I think questions are more valuable than answers. I think questions are more interesting than answers. And I think, you know, questions make a lot of people uncomfortable, but they kind of make get me excited. And Addie is the same way. I know this. Well, you know, when it comes to the origin of life question, there are a lot of good questions that are looking for answers. So Addie wrote a book called what is life? And that's ambitious all by itself because Erwin Schrodinger wrote a book by the same title in 1943, which is a very famous book now. In fact, uh, a year and a half ago, I was at a conference in Dublin by Trinity University celebrating the 75th anniversary of that book. And so he didn't do this not knowing what he was doing, right? And yeah, Addie, what I the title I, wasn't chosen by mistake. Let's put it that right. way. <laughs> okay, and so that's actually a just a perfect entree. Why would you say what is life right on the title of your book? What are you really trying to say by sticking it on there? Well, the main point in putting that title in there is to specify or to state that we don't still have the answer. Uh, Schrodinger asked the question 75 years. We've made so much progress in chemistry and biology, and we're still stuck really with the basic question, which is remarkable, which is remarkable. Yeah. Well, and so if you put 100 biologists in a room and you give them a three-by-five card and you tell them to write a definition of life, no two people's definition is going to be identical, right? Yeah. Here is the problem that do you know how many definitions of life there are? And the answer no. is I don't know either, but it's in the many hundreds. I saw a number of 400, but I'm guessing the number has since increased. And that shows better than anything else that we still don't know. And the story reminds me a little bit of the six blind men and the elephant in Hindustan. Everyone's touching some other part of the elephant and everyone has a different view of what an elephant is. You know, one thing, the one who touches his leg thinks it's a, it's 
something like a, a column. The one who touches the side of the elephant thinks it's a wall, etc., etc. And what happens is every, because life interests so many different disciplines, every discipline sees something different, just like those blind men of Hindustan. So there's a problem. So just to sort of parcel off some of the different things. So chemists often describe life as a self-reproducing chemistry and a psychologist will describe life something in terms of cognition. And I'm an information guy. And so I describe life in terms of information and a metabolism person or a physiologist, you know, a physiologist might describe it as homeostasis, right? And a zoologist might describe it as reproduction and a geneticist might describe it as heredity. And, and like, it's really, it's a really huge, almost ineffable thing. And so in your work and in your book, I think in the very first few chapters of the book, you really like drive at, okay, people, great. We got all these definitions, but we got to start with what does life do that physics doesn't and that chemistry, normal chemistry doesn't. So why don't you kind of elaborate? I think you, if I read between the lines, you are feeling some frustration with the existing approaches. Yeah. Well, biology is so different to physics and chemistry, and this is what's driving everyone crazy and why the physicists, the great physicists of the 20th century, Niels Bohr, Schrodinger, uh, Wigner, basically said there have to be laws of physics that we still haven't uncovered to explain this phenomenon because to a physicist, life does not make sense. Now, when I say it doesn't make sense, two characteristics in particular, which, I mean, we have more developed ones, but two right from the beginning, agency and function. Agency is this word that says a living thing is aware of itself and has an agenda. Now, rocks, matter, dead matter does not have an agenda. So how can inanimate matter have an agenda? And the second thing that's a a real puzzle is the word function. Function, we know anywhere you look in biology, you see function. The eyes have a function, the kidneys have a function, the ribosome in the cell has a function, the mem- everything has a function, endless function. You cannot understand biology without talking about function. Physiology is focused on function. You talk to a physicist, And you say the word function, and to a physicist, function is something about mathematics, a mathematical function. Function does not exist in physics. So then we're coming up to this question that uh, Jacques Monod said is the central problem of biology. You know, where did function and purpose come from out of Mm -hmm. an objective universe? That's the whole basis of uh, physics and chemistry. Uh, started with the modern scientific revolution some several hundred years ago, that there are laws of nature, but nature doesn't give a damn. Nature doesn't care. Nature has no purpose, no function. It just behaves the way the laws say it should behave. 
So out of this objective world suddenly pop up these creatures. And when I say creatures, I'm not talking about you and me. The simplest life form, a bacterium, already shows all of these characteristics that we're talking about. Hey, man, what's going on here? How did that come from physics and chemistry? So that's the challenge. And here I feel uh, that physics and chemistry, well, chemists in particular have an edge on the other guys. And I mean, I'm biased here, right? Um, (laughs) Because you see, one could say in a philosophical sense, well, there's dead stuff and there's living stuff. There's no connection. And that's how the world is. But once you accept, and we do accept that, life emerged from non-life, then there's a connection between the two. If there was a process that led from non-life to life, if we understand that process, we may better understand what life is. In fact, without understanding the process, we're sort of stuck. So here is the thing. And then the question that I would ask, and you like questions as much as you like answers, Instead of asking, how did life emerge? I would ask a different question. Why did life emerge? Why would dead stuff want to move in the biological direction? Now, for a second, that might sound strange, but it's no different to asking, Newton asking, why do apples fall? Okay, that's a legitimate question. And... You've got the force of gravity, etc. We understand why uh, apples fall. Now, we understand today pretty well why physical and chemical processes take place. There's this second law of thermodynamics, which I don't want to go into too much, but basically says stuff goes downhill, okay? So if you ask me why does gasoline burn, The answer is simple, second law of thermodynamics. Basically, you're going to something that's more stable from something that was less stable. But with life, you're you're making something that's less stable and it has to be maintained by energy, otherwise it doesn't stay alive. So what drove dead stuff to become living stuff why did life emerge? Okay, so this is, uh, and I think that question is more important than what a lot of, and now I'll probably get into hot water here, because a lot of emphasis in the origin of life is where did life emerge? Was it in hot springs? Was it in uh, deep sea uh, vents? And I say, hey guys, you know, that could be interesting. That's the answer to the question, how did life emerge? But before we try and figure out how did life emerge, we want to know why life emerged. And in a sense, asking how is putting the cart before the horse. Uh, Well, Addy, I agree. And I think that why questions have actually been largely forbidden in biology for a very, very long time. And you have a paragraph in your book that speaks to this. The time for biology's revolution has finally come. Strong sentiments indeed. What is no less remarkable is that modern biology appears 
to be happily meandering along its current mechanistic path with most of its practitioners indifferent, if not oblivious, to the shrill cry for reassessment. Couldn't you unpack that? Couldn't agree more. Biology has been too long in a kind of, uh, with a philosophy of biology, that there's physics and chemistry, and there's biology, and these are different subjects altogether. Now, biologists, of course, concede that uh, what's in a biological system is physics and chemistry, molecules and uh, material stuff. But they somehow see the organization of that stuff to make biology different to such an extent that one should talk about an autonomy of uh, biology, that it's a separate science. And I think here they've gone, well, wrong, because if you really want to understand biology, you have to understand that connection with physics and chemistry, and they don't. And you know why they don't? Because physicists and chemists don't. So Mm. they've basically been stuck in a situation that physicists and chemists haven't solved their problem of what life is in physical chemical terms. So they're just doing what they can do in a subject that has become detached from physics and chemistry. Now I have to be careful here. All, you know, uh, physics and chemistry, chemists have been learning a lot about the reactions of biology we know more and more about those reactions and, you know, every year, couple of years, another Nobel Prize for another mechanism. But Stuart Kaufman in one of his books says it so well. You know, the more we know about all of those reactions, that's all terrific. But what life is, somehow the more we know, the greater the mystery becomes. How do all of these reactions that we understand individually how does that all come together to make a living thing? So there is a puzzle here. Okay, so you said another thing that, that I think is really interesting. You said, biology and physics seem contradictory, quite impatible. No wonder the proponents of intelligent design managed to peddle their wares with such success. Yeah. Now, I came from the intelligent design camp and... I became persuaded that that approach was doomed, but I say that while still respecting their willingness to ask a lot of questions that most people didn't want to ask and didn't want to deal with. And by the way, intelligent design is a really big camp and it could mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And so it could mean anything from a strict traditional creationist all the way to simply it could mean a person who believes that there is a deep purpose in the universe that many materialists would deny, right? So probably if you go to that end of the extreme, probably a lot of our friends might even be classified that way. But it's a very political term, and so it's kind of fraught with problems. But what the intelligent design guys have always been saying is, Hello, people. Um, Biology has a huge number of characteristics that we don't find in any physics or chemistry. And so there's something going on here. I became convinced, well, 
a scientist can't just throw up his hands and say, God did it. You'll never publish a paper doing that. You're not going to help humanity by doing that. So we have to actually do something. And so this is why I don't identify with as an intelligent design guy anymore. But there's this kind of narrow space where you are willing to acknowledge the mystery that you just referred to, like that Stuart Kaufman said, like, well, we can understand the details of all these reactions, but we don't uh, know what caused them to happen. And then where I really feel like you hit the nail on the head is everybody is asking how, and they should really be asking why. And it's almost like, why is this fractal, you know, that goes down to the tiniest, minutest essence of the problem, that there is a very, very deep why that's going on. So, I don't know, just hand okay. it back to you. How do you, how do you begin to wrestle with a why question in chemistry, Addy? Okay, okay. First of all, the why question normally has a very simple answer. And as I said, if you ask me, why does gasoline burn and form carbon dioxide and water? Easy. Second law of thermodynamics. And that's the answer to basically the reason any chemical reaction proceeds. Second law, it's going downhill in an energetic sense. And life is a mystery because it's not behaving that way. Mm -hmm. So till now, I've been kind of discussing things from the point of view, there's a mystery, but now I want to be more positive and say there are beginnings of answers to that mystery. Mm. Stuff has happened. And the first thing I want to say is some very recent chemistry, literally in the last decade, is changing the chemistry scene. And that's maybe quite a dramatic thing to say. I mean, I would almost say a new dimension of chemistry has opened up in the last few years, uh, which to me is similar to what the Wright brothers did in 1903 when they discovered a new dimension for travel, much mm. more efficient. And this new chemistry depends on an understanding that there is a much greater chemical potential out there than we have been familiar with in normal chemistry, which I will call thermodynamic chemistry. Get stuff, react it, it goes downhill. What happened, uh, two guys, uh, Jan van Esch and Rink Ilkema, took the most boring reaction, that's a bit unfair, a very basic reaction in organic chemistry, esterification, and they, instead of doing it in the normal thermodynamic way, they created an energy fueled, they pumped it up into this dynamic state, which in chemical terms is a little hard for me to describe now, but a physical description that helps one understand that state is a fountain. A fountain is an unstable state because as soon as you turn the pump off, there's no fountain. So it's yeah. unstable, yeah. but it is stable because it's stable in the sense that it's not stable in energetic terms. It's stable in time terms. There's this fountain in Geneva. Whenever I, I'm in Geneva, not too often, but 
occasionally I get there and there it is doing what fountains do. So it's stable as long as that energy keeps coming in. Now, all of a sudden we're learning that one can create a chemical fountain. And this is what these guys did. And they opened up a new dimension in chemistry, which is kinetic chemistry, stuff that is turning over constantly. And as a result of being turned over constantly in that dynamic way, it has very different properties. These chemical systems have different properties to regular chemical systems. Now, here's the incredible thing. Chemists discovered this new chemistry in the last decade Nature discovered that new chemistry about three and a half billion years ago. The cytoskeleton is a dynamic system that's constantly turning over the conversion of tubulin into microtubules and then going back to tubulin. Back, up, back up a step and define what a cytoskeleton is. I'm not sure okay. people get Okay. Uh, just like you have a skeleton that keeps you, gives you your shape, a cell has a skeleton as well, but it's a, a different kind of skeleton in the sense that it's a dynamic skeleton that actually has function. It can provide, it enables the cell to move, motility. It is responsible for a lot of the transport, moving stuff in and out of the cell. It's responsible for a cell dividing into two cells. So you have this skeleton, just like you have one, the cell has a skeleton, which is doing stuff. Now, how can that be? And the answer is because it's this dynamic system where the components of the skeleton being converted into the skeleton and then going back to the components in this dynamic way, the cell can organize just like, by the way, it uh, controls the DNA, and we've talked about that privately and the work of Jim Shapiro. The cell, when it wants to be rigid, it has more of the microtubules. When it wants to be softer and to initiate mobility, then it's got more of the components. It breaks down that uh, cytoskeleton into the components. So you have a dynamic system that can be tuned so you have in the kinetic regime a tunable system whose characteristics can be changed. Wow, that has given nature an ability to do stuff that regular thermodynamic chemistry you cannot do. And that's what Jan van Esch uh, discovered with this taking this simple chemical reaction. He could suddenly create, make hydrogels whose character could be tuned depending on the kinetics of the process. Okay, so, so back up just a step. So a cell is constantly deconstructing and reconstructing its own skeleton, taking proteins. I think you told me that this happens literally in hours. Now, actually, this is, you see, it's not just the cytoskeleton. The proteins themselves are in a dynamic system because proteins in order to do their job in the cell, they have to be somewhere at the right time and of the right structure. So you can't just make them and leave them there. They have to be made and degraded quickly. And that takes energy. 
and you have this cyclic process where proteins are being created in the ribosome and then degraded through a mechanism that was awarded a Nobel Prize, the ubiquitin uh, labeling mechanism, in a dynamic process. So all of a sudden, suddenly one realizes that actually the cell is a dynamic system. It's a fountain within a fountain within a fountain. In other words, the reactions are little chemical fountains, the subsystems are chemical fountains, and the cell itself is a fountain in the sense that cells are coming and going all the time. So I saw you in Santa Fe six months ago, but you know you're, you're not the guy I saw in Santa Fe. You're different stuff. Because that fountain, just like the water in the water fountain, is turning over all the time. So life is a different kind of chemical system, and we have to, we're only now learning how to make chemical fountains. And that's why, from a physical and chemical point of view, life has been so mysterious, and I think now it's starting to be less so once we understand this dynamic kinetic character and then we come back to this idea that for that to take place energy has to continually put be pumped in otherwise it doesn't work so for life to have gotten started you had to have some process that got linked up with energy in and in that way the second law that says everything goes downhill doesn't have to operate in the same way, you know, balls roll downhill, right? But if you get into a car, you can drive uphill. Mm -hmm. it gets, gravity suddenly doesn't seem to be the problem because you've got energy which enables you to circumvent the gravitational force. In the same way, once you've got an energy source, you can circumvent the second law and that was something that schrodinger already pointed out in his book but how does that all come about and the answer i think is starting to appear in this very simple idea of a law that in some sense is a little more general than the second law and that's quite a, a dramatic thing to say and it's a logical law of nature which i call the persistence principle and a guy called Steve, um, forgotten the names, wrote a lovely book in, um, in 2000, Creation, where he said, here is the most important law of nature, and it is this. Things that persist, persist, and things that don't, don't. Okay. Now, a tautology sounds, how can a tautology be a law of nature? But you can turn that around into something that's more definitive, and it's basically things will tend to change from less persistent to more persistent. There's just, and that's a logical law, and one can show that law just by the following statement. Things, unchanging things don't change, and changing things do change until they change into things that don't. So, Changing things will change until they change into things that don't. 
things will move in the direction of greater persistence. Now, the second law basically says that, but it turns out that you can get persistent forms that don't behave, don't go to lowest energy, and that can come about through things that are good at making more of themselves. If something is good at making more of itself, it can be persistent because it's making more of itself. Now, cyanobacteria have been around for three billion years. Mount Everest has been around for, I think, 60 or 70 million years. It turns out that things that can make more of themselves can be very persistent. So if somehow you have a system that was able to be repl a replicative system that could couple up to an energy source, it will then tend to become more persistent through evolution. And that enables us to try and now connect what we think of as biological evolution with the evolutionary drive, which had to start off at the physical chemical level. Because if we think of, bio, uh, of evolution as something that started with biology, we're left with this, yeah, but where did all of this come from? It turns out that evolution didn't start with simple life, bacteria. Bacteria are already very complicated from a, a physical chemical point of view. The evolutionary process started with some simple chemical system and then underwent an extraordinary degree of complexification, nine orders of magnitude from a chemical system to the simplest biological system is nine orders of magnitude. I want to explain what nine orders of magnitude is. It's something the size of my hand growing to something the size of the planet. That's nine orders of magnitude. Mm. You ask a physicist and a chemist, why would something complexify nine orders of magnitude? And the answer is, gosh, no idea. Why? So we're back to the initial question that I asked. Why did life emerge? Okay. Now here is like a hint as to what's going on here. If some replicating system came about in a spontaneous way, which now, because replication is unsustainable, the only way you can have a stable replicating system is if it is constantly being created and undergoing decay. A chemical fountain being formed and decayed. And if that process can be maintained so that that system is continually there, it will tend to evolve just according to, if I say it in biological terms, natural selection, but I would call it kinetic selection. Because if you look at the math of that kind of system, as soon as that replicating system, chemical system, will find itself, will undergo some, let's call it mutation, so that it's undergone some change, and if they're competing for the same building blocks, because they're constantly being formed and degraded, then the better replicating system, the more stable one, the more persistent one, not stable because we're not talking energy now, the more persistent one will drive the less persistent one into extinction. 
So if you have a simple replicating system that is able to be sustained, it will evolve and complexify and become more persistent. Now, why does it complexify? Now we might have the beginnings of an answer to that. You've probably noticed that the Wright brothers' plane was a simple one, and a Boeing 747 is a hell of a lot more complicated. Why did people go to all of that extra trouble to make things complicated when they had such a, a simple thing? I mean, why make it complicated when you can have it simple? Because complex things function better. Complexity facilitates function. You'd much rather fly, you know, transatlantic in the Boeing than in the Wright brothers' plane. Sure. And that process, and you see that not just with planes, but with anything, a chair that you're sitting on, if it's got some levers on it and some, you know, rubber to make it soft, you know, complexity facilitates function. And that's just a rule of nature. It's just, uh, it's there. Guess what? That replicating system, early one, figured that principle out. And it just naturally followed this path of complexification. So if you think about it in this way, a replicating molecule is very unpersistent. If you want a replicating molecule to replicate, you need a lab, graduate students, grants. <laughs> and I can tell you, even if you give, if they have all of that, very often the molecules don't cooperate. They, something goes wrong. <laughs> the bacteria in the, outside in your backyard, no grants, no students, no equipment, happily, doesn't matter what the weather is, happily making more of themselves. Why? Yep. Because yep. their complexity has come about to facilitate that replicative function and to maintain to persist they are already extraordinarily persistent and therefore we had a process of complexification and that was the evolutionary process now often biologists tend to say hang on this complexity idea doesn't hold water that we're going to increase in complexity all the time because bacteria are still around so why didn't we replace more complex you know, uh, living things? How come where uh, we didn't push the bacteria into um, extinction? But it's not right to think of bacteria as individuals. Life is a network, the bacteria network with each other. Basically, the uh, bacterial function is a population function. They cannot operate on their own. They, and they, they don't. Do, they they don't. live in colonies. That's right. And guess what? Not only do they live in colonies, they live in our gut, for example. So that's part of the network as well. The network doesn't have to be just intraspecies. It can be interspecies. So the stability, stability in the sense of persistence, Remember, things that persist, persist, and things that don't, don't. So we're moving constantly in the direction of increasing persistence, and that's what we've seen in the evolutionary process that has led to this incredible 
biological takeover of the earth where that network has just grown continually and enhanced its persistence through the network process as long as energy is available, okay? Because in the end, the second law will win out. But as long as you have energy coming in, then if you can have the coincidental or spontaneous formation of some replicating system, then that process is likely to be initiated. And I think it's important to explore that because just like if you want to understand plane function, aeroplane function, it's good to look at the Wright Brothers plane and not just at the 747. You'll figure out some basic things from that Wright Brothers plane, like uh, thrust and lift, for example. might mm -hmm. be easier to see that in the Wright Brothers plane than in the 747. Maybe we'll understand many aspects of evolution and the evolutionary process by looking at how evolution operated at that very basic Wright brothers level, the chemical level, and not just looking at how the 747s changed where things get a lot more complicated. So I think, yeah. Okay, so for a bit. you use the term dynamic kinetic chemistry. Yeah. And you've also used in the past with me systems chemistry yeah and you've been describing this to me as uh really new fields with yeah. a hotbed of activity so could you kind of zoom out okay and explain like where the chemistry profession like where is this going and tell us a little bit of history here i think the big dramatic change came about in the 60s I mean, DNA was discovered in 1953, but that was part of biology, and that was, let's call it biology. You have DNA within a cell, and that mysterious cell does all of this stuff. But in 1960, in the early 60s, late 60s, Sol Spiegelman found that if you take an RNA molecule, which he took from viral, uh, a virus, its RNA, and you stick it in a test tube with the RNA's building blocks that make up that RNA, it can make, it copies itself. Basically, the RNA acts as a template to the individual building blocks. So you end up with lots of copies of RNA. And by the way, you've been, of course, reading about the coronavirus, this business. I mean, that's what the virus is not alive, really. It's just a nucleic acid. But once it gets into your cells, your cell does something really stupid. It decides to make lots of copies of this nucleic acid, which ends up often killing the cell because it's just been misdirected. Okay, so we discovered in the 60s that there are replicating molecules, and that's dramatic. But then we ran, and that led to the RNA worldview. That's how life started. But the RNA worldview ran into a brick wall. And the brick wall was this. When you take this RNA and you do this replication reaction many, many times, 70-odd times, 
it evolves. Fantastic. We're seeing evolution at the chemical level. But guess what? It does not evolve towards life. It evolves away from life. <laughs> the RNA started to shorten because the shorter RNAs replicate faster than the longer ones. So the faster one wins. So that has kind of really jammed up the works for half a century. And for the last, let's say, 20, 30 years, people have been trying to figure out other ways to tackle the origin of life question when replication on its own doesn't do the trick. But now the suggestion is that if you couple up replication with energy and create the fountain, a replicating fountain, just where the replicating molecules are being formed and being decayed, so that it then the math of that process is such that an evolutionary process towards better replicators will come about. Now, remember what I said earlier, better replication then becomes a function, a function in that biological sense. So in we basically have two pathways towards persistence in nature. The downhill thermodynamic way, which we've understood for a good since Boltzmann, a good hundred odd years. But there is another way, the kinetic way of things making more of themselves through being able to, they replicate in a process that's energy supported. And then we anticipate a complexification process and networking. So the cell is a network of chemical reactions. We are a network of cells. A society is a network of individuals. Network, network, network at all of these different levels. But it all starts with a chemical network within the cell that gradually built up around a replicating entity in order to start the process off. I hope that made sense. So would you say then that dynamic kinetic chemistry is a new branch of chemistry that using your fountain metaphor, okay, is these, these persistent patterns in chemistry where the actual molecules and the matter is being turned over constantly, but, you know, it's sort of like, well, it's like my body. Don't they say that like every cell in your body is completely replaced uh, within seven years? And so like all the matter in my body has been switched out like seven times in my lifetime. That's like a metaphor for what you're describing in that we're, we're just like within the first 10 years of this new field of chemistry. That's exactly right. What I'm saying is it's based on the realization that there is another kind of stability in nature that we were less familiar with, dynamic kinetic stability, stability of things that go around and around like a fountain. And as I say, um, uh, that realization only came about recently. And once you understand there is another kind of stability, a whole new chemistry emerges from this other stability kind. And finally, and this I find extremely exciting, biology has a physical chemical home. Mm. Suddenly we can place biological systems within a physical chemical context. 
Whereas mm. before, something didn't make sense. We understood the bits, but we didn't understand the whole. Now the whole is starting to make sense through this overview of this fountain, which becomes increasingly more complex in order to become more persistent. So that's, and I might, might add one more thing that a systems, ke- now systems chemistry, basically it deals with a variety of things. So I don't want to be too categorical here, but one of its focuses is on replicating molecules and the networks that they establish. So by studying those kinds of systems, we're trying to fill that void, empirical void between regular chemistry and biology. Biology is complex replicative chemistry and systems chemistry is simple, looking at the simplest Mm. kind of systems that can do that and kind of bring a merging of the fields. Now, just one thing I wanted to say that a system chemist by the name of Sibrin Otto in Groningen has recently, and this is kind of still, it's like submitted for publication, it hasn't come out yet, but has found a replicative system that has undergone a complexification process Mm. contrary to what you'd expect from thermodynamic considerations because it is more stable kinetically in this dynamic... He established a dynamic kinetic system and then saw that it complexified. And that's, if you like, the first piece of direct evidence for a complexification process for a replicative system, which goes against, not contradicts, but is opposes that initial result of Spiegelman, which kind of confused everybody for half a century. Okay, so we're right at the beginning of a new sub-branch of science and a new way of categorizing. Like, we have new language now and new models that we didn't have before. So, well, so the future's a little brighter. The world is in chaos, but... (laughs) <laughs> the, the chemist may save us yet. Well, I don't know about that, but uh, <laughs> we're understanding things a little better. And I think finally that conceptual gap that has separated the physical sciences from the biological sciences is starting to narrow. And then biology, physics, and chemistry at some point should merge and become Uh, unity, just like physics and chemistry have merged a hundred years ago, Mm biology has been left out in the cold. Now it's the process of biology coming in from the cold is starting to happen. And that's great news for understanding who we are and why we are here. Well, Addy, this has been great. Thank you for spending this time. Addy's got a book called What is Life? Oxford University Press. If you go look it up on Amazon, you'll find an expensive version in hardcover, but there's an affordable version on Kindle, which I have, which I think is wonderful. And Addy, we, I'm looking forward to the next time we you know, meet at a conference or something and can uh, shoot the bull and talk about the big questions. So thanks for being on today. Thanks, Perry. Great talking to you. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. 
To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. 